great to be back in Charlottesville. We, we, we actually, this is the first church that uh, Debbie and I uh, served in as a married couple. Uh, we, were, we were married up in Northern Virginia. We were in the ministry there. Um, but then the, the, the day we were married was also the day that we packed up the moving van uh, back from our honeymoon and moved right here. Uh, and that was terrific. Such a, such a great experience. We thank you. I joked with this with the guys earlier. We thank you in Hampton Roads because it seems like every time you kind of, you know, raise up ministers, we steal them and take them down to Hampton Roads. Bizarre, right? So sad. But Drew and Jenny, they're, 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 they got staying power. Praise God. Who knew, right? Uh, anyway, but, uh, you know, in, in addition to, to Drew um, meeting me and helping me become a disciple when he was two years old, uh, but Deb, Deb was met here, right on a trail, just a, a couple blocks away from here, uh, by the Hutchins. And it was right as the church was being planted, right before the church was planted, actually. Debbie was met. She was just finishing up med school at UVA, and, and she went on to do a residency here at UVA, and, and uh, those were her year, or early years as a Christian. Uh, and uh, never lets me forget that I love the beach, but she loves the mountains. And that if it could ever work out, boy, to get to the mountains. So, yeah. Amen. Well, anyway, we, we, um, we we're always so, so, so encouraged uh, every time that we're, we're here with you guys and, uh, and to hear of all the great things that are going on. And uh, amen. It's, it's so neat to know that our, our brotherhood is so deep and so easy and it's um, really so interconnected, as it should be. I mean, it's, it's, uh, w- one of the miracles that I think we take for granted a lot of times is that we can so easily move back and forth and feel right at home so quickly. So praise God for that. But so th- this year in the Hampton Roads Church, we've studied out a bunch of things that have really been mind-blowing for us as a staff. But I would say that maybe one of the top things all year that we studied, and who would ever even think of studying something like this, but here it is in our face in the scriptures, is the doctrine of work. And I, I don't mean like grace and works, that, that sort of thing, like earning your salvation. I mean nine to five work, shovel, scalpel, stylus, stethoscope, work that, that you've got to, to be able to do. Uh, we don't often preach about it. We don't often study about it, but it is going to be the topic of our passage, and so we will take a pretty good and deep look at it today. Let's pray together, and let's go to work. Amen. God in heaven, what a joy that you have made us in your image, in your image, we are to continue the work that you began in the creation of all things. Thank you, God, that in your work you are creative, you're selfless, you're serving, you're cultivating, you make order out of chaos. And as you imbue us with the imago dei, with your image, you imbue us likewise with a passion and a fulfillment that comes from work that we can't begin to understand, but as we look back at it, uh, we, we know the depth of the reality of it. Uh, God, help us now as we look at your scriptures to approach work in a sacred awe, knowing that what we do is something so much more than really meets the eye. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are over in Colossians 3, 22. Go ahead and turn over there, please. This whole section is governed by a passage that was just a few verses earlier in verse 17. I'll go ahead and look at that 
it, it then looks at uh, a lot of different everyday activities that we have in life, including be a wife, a husband, a child, or a parent. But before all that, Paul says, and whatever you do is a rather universal idea meant to get our attention. Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, lagos or ergon, uh, whether with whatever it is that you say, proclaim, or whatever it is that you put your hand to do as work. Uh, that's the Greek word work, ergon, that he uses there. We've got words like ergonomics, like you might have an ergonomic chair uh, that your boss allowed you to buy with a company budget, thinking that you'd actually get more work done. Uh, when I was in college, I was on the rowing team, and the work that we did on the rowing team was on an ergometer. And you, maybe they still have that in your gym. There's only one or two of them, and it's usually empty for good reason. It's painful. Uh, but whatever you do, whether it's your word or your work, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's one of those religious phrases that it's easy to discount. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? i got to say the name Lord Jesus as, as I do that? The In the name of, <coughs> excuse me, is, is just an idiom that means under the authority of, in alignment with the will of. Uh, and so whatever it is that you do in word or work, do it all under the authority, under the banner in alignment with the will of Jesus, who is your Lord, and as you're doing it, give thanks to God the Father through him. And now let's get down to our passage at hand in verse 22. And it begins, controversially enough, with the word slaves, doulas. Probably a third to a half of the Roman Empire, based on different estimates, were slaves. They were typically slaves in a much different context than the travesty which was the, the African slave trade made its ways to our shores. That is not what was experienced in the first century. Slavery then was not for life, nor was it race-based. As a matter of fact, some of the more famous and accomplished people in the first century in the Roman Empire were slaves, even in the midst of their accomplishments. And some of the more famous names and philosophers and lawyers doctors, they were slaves in the Roman Empire. So it's a much different concept. And so it is fair enough to be able to look at this as more of a, an employee-employer. Now, were there abuses in any type of situation where you have someone who has authority over someone else? Sure, there was, uh, for sure. And pulling this out of context, did people use this passage in 18th, 19th century America in a completely twisted foreign idea to this text to, to somehow propagate the nastiness of slavery in the U.S.? Yes, they did. But the fact that somebody has tortured and twisted the text at, at a different time period should not in any way cause us to not marvel at still the real truth of the text rather than the distortion of the text. And, and, the truth, and, and by the way, just as a side note, the irony of anybody using this Colossians passage or even Ephesians as some sort of a way to reinforce slavery in polluted 18th century, 19th century America is laughable because the reason that these letters likely went out is that first and foremost, Onesimus and Paul got together in prison and Paul converted him. Onesimus was a runaway slave who had apparently stolen from Philemon and now Paul is using Epaphras, a friend of both of them, to go back to Colossae with a letter saying, Philemon, 
Here's what I want you to do. I want you to treat Onesimus as more than a slave. You treat him as a man. And more than a man, as a brother as well. And called for him to release that slave. So in the very context of Paul calling for the release. And by the way, when there's final greetings in in chapter 4, guess who's greeted? Onesimus is is greeted in in this very letter, by the way. Uh, So this is a context of Paul on a bit of a mission to free a slave, not to reinstill slavery. There's no agenda for that at all. But anyway, let's, let's put that aside. The reason that this has applicability to us is because, again, a third to a half of all of the population served in slavery of, of different sorts. Typically what happened was you came into slavery because you were a bondservant. You had a debt that became overwhelming, and then you had to work it off in some sort of a bondservant relationship. Paul, of course, says if you can gain your freedom, gain it. By the way, too, one of the more powerful statements by Jesus that are made, written after this was written uh, in Matthew's Gospel, which was probably written another 10 years, or actually probably 15 years after this letter is written, but Paul, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, and when he teaches them to pray, he says to them, pray like this, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debt against us. If you're a master that has slaves, you have those slaves because of debt. Think of how radical that prayer is. And when Jesus decides to expand at the end of that, on one point of that prayer, he doesn't expand on the fact that God is the Father, or even that uh, all should have their daily bread, or even that the kingdom was coming. He expands on one thing. If you don't forgive people their debts, then your Father in heaven will not forgive your debts. That probably did more to dismantle first century slavery than anything else. And as a side note, those that ended up being the leading lights of the abolition movement in America were all Christians, real Christians, not some sort of ersatz corrupt Christianity that that populated the South that tried to reinstill slavery. So again, we can't let their kind of crazy abuse of either life or scripture, keep us from reveling in what it is that Paul has given us here because it is more likely a situation that we would have found in first century Colossae where he may have been talking to to, to lawyers or doctors or ditch diggers or or whomever at this point. Uh, And this has applicability to any of us with a job. And so he says, slaves. Wow, I only said one word so far and I went that far. Uh, (laughs) Slaves. Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart. That word sincerity of heart is also used in Matthew 6 by Jesus when he says, if your eye is sincere, if your eye has integrity, if your eye is generous, it's the word for being one or having integrity. One is is the idea of of, uh, integrity. Uh, but it is this idea of being not only deep in your integrity, but overflowing in your generosity. It's an interesting word that means both of those things. So here Paul is saying, all right, slaves, you got masters. Sorry about that. But you know what? Since it is your case, then work for them, not just when their eyes on you, but do it with generosity and an unimpeachable integrity of heart Why? Because of a reverence for the Lord. Not a fear of men, but a fear of the Lord. 
And whatever you do, you work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Now, a lot of times we'll even try to impress that upon ourselves or our kids to you know, maybe motivate some great work. Say, work as if you're working for the Lord. But I like what Paul goes on to say here. It is the Lord Jesus you are serving. Not work as if you're working for the Lord. There is no as if. You're working for the Lord Jesus. And I'll get deeper into this, and this is the stuff that was mind-blowing for me studying this. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. That's the bridge scripture to go on to the next group, which is the masters, the employers, the, the managers, the supervisors in today's parlance. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know you also have a master in heaven. And by the way, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. So that's a, a rather intense approach that would have upended a lot of preconceptions about work. But now for us, as, as we look at work, uh, I, I think there's a lot of different ways that I've viewed work over my life. Before I was a Christian, work was kind of like my end-all and be-all. I had been advancing through Coca-Cola corporate corridors at a pretty good rate, I had kind of groomed my life through education to be at just the right place and to progress at just the best pace possible. And work was everything. After I was baptized, I was 29 when I was baptized, and I was already now entering into senior management of Coca-Cola. Uh, suddenly then, I had a weird swing in my work life. Suddenly, I so devalued my work at Coca-Cola that there was something bizarre about it. And, and I knew that I, I needed to consider that more, more clearly. And I'll talk about some of these things in a minute as, as I talk about the different ways that we can consider our work. But before I go into it, what, what I'd like to do is just share a bit of a parable that is a, a way to kind of help us make sense of the different ways that we can view work. And so this parable is set in medieval Europe uh, during some of the different uh, building projects. And a knight comes over a ridge, and as he comes over the ridge, he looks down into this area and he sees a lot of real serious work going on, and there's a lot of masonry work, bricklaying going on. And as he comes up to the first worker that he encounters, he says to the man, what is it that you're doing? And that man just kind of looks up at him, has a oi gavoy uh, uh, attitude, and is, just says to him, oh, you know what? I'm just laying bricks, laying bricks. You know, he's putting in putting in my 40 and, you know, just doing it to get the paycheck. So anyway, just laying bricks. So the uh, knight bids him fare thee well and gallops on off. <laughs> Brave Sir Robin, he ran away. Uh, and, 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 makes his, and makes his way over uh, to, the, uh, to, to the next fellow. And, and to the next fellow, he seems to be doing exactly the same thing. But he, he thinks he'll, he'll ask him, maybe he'll get more information from him. And he says, hey, what is it that you're doing? And, and this man jumps up and says, glad you asked, Sir Knight. Because what I am doing is I am constructing one of the best engineered, handcrafted, curated, 
masonry projects that anyone has ever engaged in. My work is known throughout the land. I have been called on, especially here, for my expertise because of my abilities to be able to engineer such walls as these. And he, and he points to his, his work, that, just that. And, and for this man, he's into his work, but he's also into what the work says about him. And then he kind of, you know, the, the night is like, oh, this guy's going to go on forever. Oh, hey, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then off he rides to, you know, down, down the valley. And he comes to the next man. And, and he says to the next man, and, and what is it that you're doing? And this man, in quiet confidence, stands up. The knight looks and sees, as he asks him that, that goosebumps have already formed on this man's arms. And he says, quietly but yet excitedly, I am building a cathedral to the Lord. I'm one of the most blessed men there is. And the, the knight was so taken by that. And, and I think those are three areas that we want to keep in mind. Just laying bricks, just, you know, making the money, put food on the table. Or, hey, I'm all that. Look at, look at my wall. To, wow, I get to do the work for the Lord. And we'll, we'll look at each of those in turn today as we consider the different approaches that we have to work. My, my first point today is actually one of the two errors that we can have when we think about work. And the first one is the error of the idol. And by idol here, I'm, I'm talking about we may go to work, we may actually work pretty hard at times, but we're not working wholeheartedly, as this passage talks about. We don't have a generosity of heart that accompanies our approach to work as we go to work. And, and there are three subpoints to this, by the way, or, or three reasons why I think this error occurs. And the, the first is what, what I, I call the necessary nuisance attitude, that my work is a necessary nuisance. I just got, and, it, and it's embedded in the idea that we think at some level that work is somehow a curse. At best, a necessary nuisance. I was across from a, a fellow who's an engineer, an accomplished engineer, just a week and a half ago having dinner. And during the dinner, he basically shared this attitude, despite the fact that he has a great boss, a great job, but he says, you know, all I want to do is just grin and bear it, clock in, clock out, get my paycheck, and just, you know, get on out of there. And for him, work has become a necessary nuisance. And I, and I think what we need to recognize is to see what work is biblically. And what's interesting is we've got to go back to really understand it. Because in Genesis, I'll just read some of these to you. In Genesis, it says, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Subdue is a rather interesting word, because it doesn't just mean abuse it, or, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know, uh, you know, do, do some, some sort of um, deleterious uh, approach to... Uh, mining the raw minerals of this place and, and leave it worse off. Subdue is the idea to cultivate in the Hebrew language, is that you are, you are actually going to take this earth and continue the work that I have done in it. I'll get back to that word in, in a minute. And you will have dominion over the fish of the sea, 
over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's Genesis 1.28, just a couple verses down in 31. And then God saw what he had made, and behold, it was very good. The words that are used for God throughout this whole section here, made, created, shaped, formed, planted, they're all the words of work, of labor, all assigned to God. And when we meet God in Scripture, we meet him as a laborer. In some cases, basic ver verbs of labor. In other cases, the words of a craftsman of labor. But, but in every case, very much a hands-on laborer is the, the picture of God. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And then later on, uh, we, we, we also read in Genesis 2, Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. This is kind of like the zoom and snapshot of creation. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted, again, this is the work of a, of a gardener, a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And here we have that concept again. Now God has, in a sense, done work. And what has he done at the end of that work? He's taken the baton of work and handed it to the only creature that is made in his image. Now, is this work that, that God has given the man cursed or not? Here's the interesting part. All of this is written before the fall, before the curse. Work is not a curse. Work is meant to be the expression of your significance. It is the, the very thing that you do that aligns you with the very continuation of God. And we, being made in the image of God, continue to express God by the privilege of being able to work. That word, image of God, the, kind of, kind of, the, the Latin writers always refer to it as the imago dei. And I know it's just kind of a Latinized way of saying the image of God, but it had in it a real sense of awe that who are we, creatures on this earth, to be made imago dei. But in fact, you are. Every one of us, even before our redemption, we are still made imago dei. And when Christ comes, he redeems us. And all of that is, is expressed all the more. But again, as I mentioned, the most notable thing about this, all this takes place before the fall. So work is not a result of sin. It is part of God's original design for all humanity. It was a, a central part. The word cultivate in Genesis 2.15 is actually the Hebrew word for just simply the word for work or service. You are to work for and service the earth. Uh, likewise, the word subdue is, is this word to create culture out of this earth. Uh, we're not meant to be, and, and so what, what does that mean? How are we to treat the earth then as workers in alignment with God? Well, you could either be a park ranger or a developer in the ways that you can look at that, right? The park ranger, leave nothing but footprints, take nothing but photos, right? You, you, you don't do anything, just, just kind of let it run, you know, have babies and plant trees. Uh, that, that's, all, that's all you're going to do, and you, but that's not the idea of create culture, and subdue the earth. Now, the developer is not a good analogy either. Uh, the developer is just going to want to pave over. 
whatever gets in its way and, and to just create more parking lots. Sadly, I hear somebody just told me that the, um, the, the quad in downtown is going to become a parking garage. Honey, we got to go. That was our first date. That was our first date ever. Yeah, I know, right? Man. But anyway, that's a big deal for me. But, but we're, we're not meant to just kind of abuse creation. But what are, what are we meant to? We're meant to be like a gardener, right? We're, we're, we're meant to, to kind of create, continue to create and evolve and, and bless all the raw materials, to take those raw materials and do something fantastic with it. We're to dig up the ground, rearrange it with a goal in mind, rearrange the raw materials of the garden so that it produces food and flowers and beauty. And that is the pattern for all work. It's creative. It's assertive. It's rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and flourish. Think about God's work as it's described, creating order out of chaos. Creativity is is the essence of God. When he works, he is selfless. When he works, he is serving. Think about your work. And I hope that as you think about your work, you think about the worst job you ever had. Right? Not a job that you're like, yes, I got a great Think about the worst job you ever had. Think about a job that's coming your way this week, or it, it came last week, that you don't look forward to. Raking all the leaves and bagging them. In, in, in your right, they, they just the, the work of that. Like, what's so glorious about that? Shouldn't I kind of, you know, I don't know, pay somebody 25 bucks to, to, to do this and I'll be out proclaiming Jesus? You know what? When you do that work of raking your leaves, the imago dei is being expressed in you. What, what is happening is you're creating order out of chaos, that you are selflessly serving in the midst of that. You're taking the raw materials and helping. Something not just survive but thrive for your family or for others as, as you do even such a mundane task as that as raking the leaves. So, Lindsay, when we get home. <laughs> but, but I want you to think about your worst job that, that you've ever had. That was not a curse that you had. Yeah, you don't know my job. I'm the one at McDonald's who had to scrub the grease in the back of that kitchen from right underneath the front. You know what you were doing? You were creating order out of chaos. You were in alignment with God himself. The Imago Dei was expressed in you as you got that water as hot as possible and that ammonia as bearable as possible to your nostrils, almost a one-to-one ratio with the water that you had to put in there in order to get up that grease. But you know what you did? You did something in alignment with the will of God. Not just as necessary evil, but work that aligns you with God himself. We were created for work. Let that sink in. That's what we were created for. We were to subdue, to cultivate, to plant, to work. Adam and Eve were meant to split the atom. They were meant to take God's creation and extend it and cultivate it and bring it to the great place. They were meant to exercise dominion over all creation turning the entire earth into a showcase of his glory, his beauty, and his majesty. And then working it and caring for it for all of eternity. And so God's work and his design for work is what we see from the very beginning. And the ultimate goal for every aspect of life and culture 
was to be saturated, everything to be saturated with the beauty and the glory and the love of God. Now, you, you think, oh, but if I could just kind of win the lottery and lay in a hammock and have a coconut-shaped cup and a little umbrella in it and just, just sip mojitos, all, like that, that would be self-actualization. <laughs> you know what? Those that have been studied, that, that have had that, actually report just the opposite. The lack of significance, the lack of service, pure self-indulgence, doesn't in the end reinforce the imago dei and and therefore feed our soul. Yeah, yeah, but you don't know I have a soul-sucking job. You you think you do, but if you were on that, you don't know the depth of soul-sucking until you don't have any ability to contribute to the greater good whatsoever. That's soul-sucking. That's what we should really be be, be fearing. Uh, That's uh, what, what's that movie where they're all so fat they couldn't even like walk around? Um, Wally, yes, that's that's the dystopia that, that that results when there is no great significance or work for us to be able to do. Now, what about this curse thing? Well, here's what's interesting. It says, and he said to Adam, this is in Genesis three, because you listened to the voice of your wife, and you've eaten the tree of which I've commanded you shall not eat of it, cursed. Is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You know what is cursed? Man is cursed. You know what is cursed? Creation is cursed. But you know what is not cursed? Work itself is not cursed. Sometimes we think that because Women will have labor, and maybe we think of the word labor, you know, childbirth will be with pain, uh, that, that sometimes because we think of the word labor, and we think, oh, well, that's, that, that's part of, like, the curse, is that the, the, the work or the labor of, of having a child is, is cursed. No, we, as, 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 as God's rebels against him are cursed, and our habitation is cursed, but not, it would be like saying prayer is cursed. As a result of the fall, Communication with God is infinitely different. And yet, at the redemption of all things, communication with God, and I'll read this in a bit later, is wonderfully restored. And and likewise, work itself will be restored in a wonderful way at at the end of of all things. Um, But it was always God's plan for us to work, made in his image. Jesus says, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. That's John 5, 17. That's the very nature of God. That's the very nature of the Imago Dei, is that we work. Now, do we rest as well? Yes, we rest as well. Uh, but, but yet, we, we have a beautiful, sacred rhythm to the way that we go about our lives. But without meaningful work, we do sense a significant inner loss and an emptiness. People are cut off from work because of physical or even other reasons. They, they report and quickly discover how much they need work to thrive emotionally, physically, even spiritually. According to the Bible, we don't merely need the money from work to survive. We need the work itself to survive and to live fully human lives. 
There was an author who wrote, Why Work? Her name was Dorothy Sayers. And in it, she wrote, what is the Christian understanding of work? It is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties. Then I love this last phrase. Work is the medium in which he offers himself to God. That is your medium. Every time that you work, you are, by definition, serving someone. You are, by definition, selfless. You are, in many cases, creative. You're like, dude, after this, I'm going to Hardee's and I'm making burgers. That burger did not exist before you made it. <laughs> and believe it or not, that creative act is in alignment with the very will of God. Or you're bringing order out of chaos. Remember that, Lindsay, this afternoon or tomorrow. Get some rakes. So, so maybe, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's not that you just view work as a necessary evil, a distraction, I better just do it. Maybe that's not the error that has gripped you in your ongoing walk in Christ. Maybe it's the idea that it is a distraction from divine or more noble work. And that's why you've not given your heart fully to your work. And in a sense, what, what is interesting is that God stands back after the work that he does, after all that he has made, and says, in effect, that's very good. Like all good and satisfying work, the worker should see himself in it. That well-raked yard, you should be able to look back and take delight that not only was I used to accomplish this, but the image of God was expressed in me accomplishing this. God sees himself and his satisfaction in the work that he has done. The church goes so far in, in uh, Thessalonica to err on the, on the side of thinking that, well, Jesus is coming back any time now, so we should just wait in white robes on our rooftops and why sully ourselves or distract ourselves with the smallness of life of labor. And that's why Paul has to bring correction their way by saying to them in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10, and 11, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. And that's really the, the classic excuse that the Thessalonians gave, gave themselves for, for why it is that they weren't engaged in the everydayness of what they considered profane or mundane labor activities, thinking that, no, 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 we need to be at the ready, preparing ourselves to be spotless without blemish or defect, awaiting the great parousia, the arriving of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. God in Scripture is described in, in the Psalms as planting, cultivating, gathering, sharing, sheathing, all of these kind of labor Labor activities are all ascribed to God. And it's how he wants to be described because he inspired it. He loves to be described as a laborer. Uh, and nonetheless, he's also described, for example, in John 16, 8, as one who will come and convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. That, that he will do that as well. The rabbis even said, if you do not teach your son a trade, you teach him to steal or starve. Uh, and that 
There is nothing in any way that distracts us from the divine. As a matter of fact, when we are doing our job well, it should astound people to the divine. You all remember Kirk Valencia, another person that's now in Hampton Roads should be here. Exactly, right? So anyway, years ago, uh, Kirk was working um, at the most elitist boutique grocery store in downtown Norfolk. And he was making his way through ODU. Uh, Rob probably remembers this story. A lot, a lot of us remember what, what happened at this. So at this boutique grocery store, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I mean bougie to, to, to the max, this place, right? But he's the checkout clerk. And he loves his job. He throws himself into his job. Everything. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I get to be able to do that. I serve people. And I get in. I sit them in their way. And I give them advice. Oh, my gosh. I'm the greatest. He's, he's like a grocery clerk that they all look down on because they're so elitist. And, and yet he loves it to the max. But during a campaign that we had, a, a, an outreach campaign, one of the challenges in the campaign was to evangelize every single person you meet today. That's kind of tough if you're the grocery clerk at the most elitist grocery store in the entire 757. And, and, but Kirk decides, you know what? I love my job, but I also love these people, so I'm going to go for it. And he does. He, he invites every single person out. And later on that night, four of them call back and say, your Kirk, uh, clerk, Kirk, your Kirk, clerk, clerk, Kirk, is proselytizing. How dare he? I am offended. And if you don't do something about it, you're not going to have me as a customer. Four people said exactly that. And so his manager, this woman, uh, takes him to, uh, to, to the office and says, Kirk, I really need to talk to you. And he's like, okay, yeah, what is it? What is it? He's excited. Oh, my gosh, I get to be in the back office. <laughs> and she says, Kirk, here's the four phone calls that I just got. And here's what's going on. And, and she's like, this is really difficult for me to say. And he's like, you know, kind of now all of a sudden it's not, oh, my gosh. Now he's like really sober. And he's listening. And, and what came next was interesting. She said, but you know what? I would rather have you as an employee than those four people as customers. And the other reason that this is really difficult, too, is that despite those four phone calls, I'm also rewarding you employee of the month. Congratulations. <laughs> and, but then she, she did say to him, hey, but what about this, like, um, you know, evangelism stuff? Like, what's going on? He goes, oh, that's so interesting that you would ask. And he pulls out the whole campaign, and he lays out the month calendar on there. He goes, well, see, tomorrow I'm going to reach out to somebody who intimidates me. The day after that, I'm going to be able to serve people in a certain way. The day after that, I'm going to do that. And, and, uh, and he goes, yeah, so this is what he gets. She goes, she goes All right, well, at least I know. But, Peter, but I have a lot of people who, who come to me and say, ah, oh, I got fired for being a Christian, you know, because I, I had to, you know, do Christian-y things. And, and I know these people, and you know why they got fired? They got fired for not being a Christian. Because if they had been a Christian and worked as Paul ascribes in this passage, they would have been bulletproof. Because they would have given generously. They would have worked at it with all of the Lord. They would have realized that they're not working for men and that the work that they do is actually the Lord's work. Whether they sweep or, or, or build or repair or cook, or whatever it is, that whatever it is that they do, they're actually working for Jesus, as, as this passage does say, in alignment with the very purposes of Jesus. It is the Lord Jesus you are serving. But the third error can be summed up in two words, and I've alluded to it already, Taco Bell. 
sure, you know, Kim can get up here, and she's accomplished, and she's a professional, and that sounds all good, and Debbie's a physician, and that's all great, and you all have these kind of special jobs, and yeah, maybe it's easy for you, but I work at Taco Bell, or I work at Burger King. I wear paper hats. Ding, fries are done. Ding, fries are done. You, you don't know what, what, what it is that, that I need to do in, in these places. Well, here's what's interesting. If God came into the world, what would he be like if that question were asked of ancient Greeks, Romans? They would say, well, he'd come as a, as a great warrior king. He'd come as a great sage statesman. But how does he come into the world? He comes as a framer, as a drywaller, as a bricklayer. That's how Jesus comes into the world. Our first manifestation of God in Genesis 1, he's a gardener. And the second great manifestation of God in Matthew 1 or, or throughout the Gospels, he's a builder. The two jobs that we Americans don't even do, we outsource the two things that God does. And, and for us to, to, to then recognize all work has dignity. All work. Work that we don't like to do is the work that God did. But all work has dignity because it reflects God's image in us. And also because the material creation we are called to care for is good in every aspect. We were built for work and the dignity that it gives us as human beings, regardless of status or pay, every Christian should be able to identify with conviction and satisfaction the ways in which his or her work participates with God in his creativity, his cultivation, his service. Order from chaos, creativity, cultivation, selfless service. This is what we need to, to, to be able to look at. And no matter what your work, ah, but I don't know, you know what? Here's, here's the way that Paul describes work, and it's very interesting. In, in, I'll read it to you in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, nevertheless, each person, and he's also talking about slaves. I mean, talk about having a station in life that is not uh, lofty. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. That word assigned is a theologically pregnant word. It is used of the special work that was assigned to Apollos and Paul in their mission field. It was assigned to who would be appointed apostles. In the Old Testament, it is the word of assigning the priests or the prophets. It is a very solemn and sacred word. And your occupation has been assigned, this says, has been ordained just as God has called you. And now the word called is used later on of each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them, is later used of your calling to Christ. So God has called you to a job, and he's also called you to Christ. Kaleo is the same word in both cases, and assigned is also a very sacred idea. You think, oh no, God has assigned me to Taco Bell. God has called me to the deep fryer. Ah! Only if you lose sight of the dignity that God and Jesus would see in that very thing that you do. Why didn't Jesus just come as a 30-year-old, show up on the scene, say, I'm ready to take your sins. Where's the cross? He came to redeem you 
and your work. He came to fulfill all righteousness, which meant to work for those years. He schlepped back and forth from Nazareth to Sephoris, the place where he worked for for all those years, 3.4 miles each way, built roads, built uh, the the structures that were there, built it for the Romans, actually, in in the case of that town where he worked. But But he did all of that as a day laborer, as like the guy who's waiting outside a Home Depot looking for work for that day. That was the nature of Jesus' occupation as a tecton. And and he does that so that we see that everything has dignity because everything is work, and work by its nature is selfless and serving and creative and cultivating and bringing order out of chaos. It's blow away. It's so astounding. I, I, I never, never tire now of whatever work I have to do whether it's like ministry work of actually preaching or, or, or studying the Bible with someone or raking the leaves or any, any sort of just uh, mundane, what I would otherwise think of as mindless activity that, that, that I would need to do. Uh, I remember one time I had to like pull up all the boards of our deck. Everyone was so painful. But you know why? Because it's a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. Every time I try to like, you know, put the screw in there, it's stripped. I'm like, ah, it's all cursed. Well, the work is not cursed. I live in a fallen world, but I'm still creating what I, and it's hard. Prayer is hard. It's a lot easier for Adam to talk to God than it is for me to talk to God. But nonetheless, Jesus came to redeem all this and to point towards the ultimate redemption. All creation groans, Romans 8. All creation groans for recreation. It will all be made new. And in that time, my goodness, how wonderful it's going to be. But that's my third point. But my, my, my second point here is not the error of the idol, but the terror of the idol. And this is what can happen when you're the man who's not like, ah, you know, gotta, gotta you know, make the donuts, gotta put down the bricks, gotta make my, my, my uh, uh, you know, daily wage. But to the guy who's like, check out my wall. Check out my accomplishments. Check out my expertise. My craftsmanship. When suddenly your work provides you with your security, your identity, your deliverance, your arrival, that is by nature your idol. And if your identity, your deliverance, your security is not because of Jesus, but will really come if you could just get this promotion, if you could just be accepted for this job, if even in the house, as you're, as you're you know, working in the home, if your kids could just you know, kind of turn the corner and, and have deliverance in that learning disability or in that behavioral issue, if, if you could finally just you know, be organized enough that your house looks the way that you always wanted it to be, if that's what gives you your identity, then whether you're working in the home or working in uh, the, the, uh, the office, that either way, that has become an idol. And that's a frightening thing. Why? Because whatever it is in which we put our security or trust begins to shape us. It's why 2 Corinthians uh, speaks of the idea that we are uh, all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord. This opposite mistake that work is the only important human activity that rest is annoying to me. This error is more frightening 
than the other. Uh, because this error will distort you. It is soul-sucking. Because now suddenly everything turns on the letters written after your name, on the business card you get to hand out, on the letterhead that bears your significance. When it all turns on that, you then become distorted, tortured by this idol. You'll do things to maintain this identity that you thought you would never do. Oh, not me. You'll see. Yeah, you'll see. If, if this is your, you will. You will because it will shape you and it will guide you just as Jesus is meant to shape you and to guide you. Just as you're meant to be shaped into Jesus with ever-increasing glory, that will never happen if you allow an idol to remain in your life. And if that idol is your job, then it will twist you in ways that you don't even perceive because you're there so often. You know what I love about this passage is that most of what we preach and study and uh, share with one another is stuff that, even as you sit here, most of what you hear, you perceive, I will do this outside of my nine to five. Love one another, encourage one another, disciple one another, make disciples, share the gospel, serve the poor. All of that, somehow you kind of sequester in your mind outside of the nine to five. You think, well, yeah, yeah, there is that one person at work, maybe I'll mention this too. But that's the extent of it. This passage hits you square in the nine to five. Half of your waking hours are targeted by this passage. And if you can really, if we all can get on straight, the significance of our work, no matter what it is, whether, again, as you hold in your hand, a shovel, a scalpel, a stethoscope, or a stylus, whatever it is, the significance of that, my goodness, then we begin to work generously. And, and we go on to, well, let, let me move, move my way away, away from, from this last uh, uh, terror of the idol and to look at really where we're meant to be. The dignity of the ideal. It is. And in this dignity of the ideal, it was God's perfect design for work because we were made in God's image. Part of his glory and happiness is that he works as does the Son of God. And, and as we work, our work, our significance, our creation, and our lives were redeemed by Jesus when he came and worked. It is already redeemed. It's not restored yet. But when all creation is restored, what do you think it's going to look like? We're not going to be on a cloud strumming a harp and, and singing endlessly. Some of you fear that, and rightly so. Because that's boring. But you're going to do some work. But instead of trying to you know, drill that screw into the stud and have it strip when it's only an eighth of an inch away, and then you got to figure, I might cut it off, I'm going to bang it in, what am I going to do here? It's going to go in like butter. Like butter. Every time. Whatever it is you put your hand to do, wow, what a crop of cherry tomatoes is going to rise up from that. Whatever it is that you decide to do, wow, is that going to, to glisten? Wow, is that going to come off? Every time you take the razor blade to, to, to your stovetop, that stuff's just going to kind of fly right on off. It's almost like you have like a, a, a magic eraser just kind of going right across. All right? But everything you're going to do. But do you look forward to when Jesus returns in the age to come? And, and by the way, we don't go to heaven, according to Revelation. Or, or for, what happens is that God comes down and, bees with, and will be with us. All of this is recreated, 
And we have, I guess, like a new Eden experience based on the way that Revelation 22 describes it. That's what we're going to have. And I asked at breakfast the other morning with a bunch of mature men, I said, do you look forward to, in the age to come, the work that you're going to do? And almost everyone else said, you know, I don't think I really think of that. I don't think I really even think of what it's going to be. But yet, there will be commerce. There will be city gates. There will be comings and goings that will go on. Let me read this to you. This is the age to come. This is God's design for creation, for you, and for work. Uh, Isaiah 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. All of these images are, are resounded in uh, Revelation 22. They, now listen to this part. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as in the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, but they will be a blessed people by the Lord and they and their descendants with them. Work is going to be redeemed and restored. But not, it's not all. Remember I said, hey, thinking about work as a curse now is like thinking about prayer as a curse. Look at, I mean, think about communication with God. The very next verse says, and before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. You know, just as communication will be redeemed and our connection with God will be that amazing and beautiful, we'll see the face of God, Revelation tells us. Not only that, but work itself will be redeemed. We'll know the full expression of what we were meant to be by, by workers for God. And so there are different things that we do that make a statement. I think we are unified. I think we love one another. I think people who get to know us have to stop and take notice of us. But it's not necessarily that they do it because of the way you work. You know, Katina, uh, when she graduated from here at UVA, went on to work for Arthur Anderson. And, and while, again, having, she, she was in the church here. And, and, and then for years, she worked with this other girl who was so skeptical of her. But she kept watching the way she worked. And, and she was like, I don't, you know, that girl keeps inviting me to church. I'm going to look for a chink in the armor. And when I find it, I'm going to expose it. Because, you know what, they, she just seems to be just over the top, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'm going to wait. And she watched her at work. And after about a year and a half, she came weeping to her and told her her plan and said it failed. Because I watched the way you are at work, and I've never seen anybody work with that integrity, with that generosity, with that kind of wholeheartedness, with that kind of joy, and with that kind of thanksgiving. You obviously are working for the Lord. She turned herself in, she studied the Bible, and was baptized. And she now, she now serves in the ministry uh, with Abu and Katina uh, together uh, as, as a result of, of her being so amazed at Katina's work as a, uh, a, a CPA consultant. But what if that's what the Blue Ridge Church is known for? Yes, your love. Yes, your evangelism. Yes, your Bible knowledge. Yes, all of those things. But what if you were known for a people collectively, beautifully, communally, 
that looks nothing more to want to do than to honor God and to infuse his creation with beauty and order and wonder in the way that you work. Whatever it is that God has appointed for you to put your shoulder to or your hand to, to work at it with all your heart, knowing that it is indeed not as if you are working for the Lord, but as this passage says, it is the Lord Jesus you are serving. Do you think your job would be too beneath Jesus? Think again. He would honor it because all work has dignity. If you honor your work in the way that Jesus would honor your work, and if you work at your work working for Jesus, we're going to make a statement. So my final charge to you is simply this. Build a cathedral to the Lord. You are serving the Lord. You are doing his work. You are expressing his image. You're creating order. You're making a difference. With every burger you flip, with every espresso you roast, with every line of code you write, with every memo you craft, with every floor you sweep, every patient you comfort, every order you process, every customer you invoice, every meter you read, every diaper you change, every brick that you lay into place, build a cathedral to the Lord. Amen. Amen.